Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. We're the professional association for UK film and TV directors. No matter the format, no matter the genre, our featured directors share their approach to the craft. We hope you enjoy. Can we please welcome the director of One Life, James Horse, who's joined in conversation with another brilliant director, Jessica Hobbs. Thank you, James and Jessica. I'm going to start with a little story, actually. Um, Screening this at the festivals in Toronto and London, um, we did something that I can't do for you tonight, but I started at this point reading a list of names. In London, it was 12 names. Um, I invited those 12 people to stand if they were in the audience and explained that those 12 people left Prague 84 years ago and were among the original kinder of what you've just seen. Um, uh, the power of a true story coming into the room. Uh, I want to link this to Directors UK because I was part of the predecessor organisation, the DPRS, um, and I sat on the board with various uh, notable directors, including Carol Rice, who had directed a Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, French Lieutenant's Woman and other films. He was one of Nicky's children. So there is a link directly to this organisation. I just thought I'd throw that in as part of the conversation. <laughs> I'm just thinking you're probably feeling like I did when I saw this on Monday night, which is subdued and taking it in. And so we'll start the conversation and then at the end we'd like to open the floor up to have questions. I'd like to run it more as a discussion for directors, so we'll be quite specific about some of the areas that James was working in and some of the things that he was doing rather than a more general idea of the production. Um, I just wanted to talk to James or wondered if you could talk at the beginning. I was really struck by the humility of the filmmaking. So when I watched it, it it felt like a very kind of conscious, deliberate choice to be humble, I guess, in the way it was presented. And that really struck me as a choice that you made directorially. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, we did. Um, uh, We had a tone word, which was restraint. Um, We felt that there was enough emotion in the story And in every department, um, through the choices of actors, to the performance choices, to the music, um, people may feel differently and come back at me later, please, but um, the the feeling was to to withhold, um, that we didn't want to over-saccharine it, we didn't want the camera to be busy. Um, We'll talk about camera choices, I'm sure, at some point, but throughout the whole thing, it was, let's hold back. It's... One of the, the things I'm always curious about directorially is how did you how did the story come to you? Did you find the story? Did you chase it, or did, was it a kind of a, a combination, as it often is, of luck and timing? I, there is a little bit of luck and timing, absolutely. Um, it came from Cecil Films. Yep. I just worked with them on Slow Horses, um, which is brilliant. If you haven't watched it, it's brilliant. It's got Gary Oldman in and fart jokes. Please watch. <laughs> it's, really, um, it's really clever. Uh, it's. Uh, we worked, I enjoyed working on C- with Seesaw a lot and fortunately they seemed to like what I did and they had this script and they needed a director. I have a background in um, dramas about true stories and real people. Um, they'd been for television before. This was my first big screen movie. Um, on, a, on top of a very storied television career, I would say. And also you, be- you be- began in current affairs, didn't you? You began in a kind of... I began at the BBC. Um, 
I did eight and a half years at the BBC on what's called a staff contract. Um, I owe the BBC so much. It was a, a fantastic training ground. Um, the rigour that you were taught about story, about um, care of your sources, um, care of your contributors. Um, th there was this drill when you came up with an idea that you had to write the Radio Times billing in 50 words. And if you couldn't sell it on those written cold 50 words, there was no further conversation. And that kind of discipline was drilled into you again and again and again. And I think that's... In fact, there's another thing I need to tell you. My second ever job was as a trainee assistant producer on That's Life. Oh, um, wow. I don't know whether that now signals the end of my career in <laughs> trouble this circle. But I hope not, considering it's your first film. I hope, and I know you're in the middle of making your second film. Trying to. Right now. Well, yes. yes, the strikes and yeah. all of the complications with that. One of the things that... Uh, the other things that really struck me, and I'm, I'm sure for a lot of the audience, is... Directorially, I think, you know, we carry a moral obligation to the stories that we're telling. Can you talk to that when you're dealing with, well, what is a true story? What are the elements of truth that you choose to put on screen? What do you choose to, to leave out? And how does, how does that responsibility sit with you during the whole process from script to what we've just seen? Funnily enough, one of the places I start is by talking about what's the first caption going to be. There are many ways of doing it. Based on a true story, this is a true story. Yep. Um, uh, and th what are the captions at the end? So what are the things you're going to take away from the cinema um, that remind you that everything you've watched happened? Um, depending on the type of the story in this one, we felt a tremendous duty to be as accurate as we possibly could. There are some conflations. Yep. Can I give you as an example? There's a moment where um, a German soldier on the train says... Why does England want all these Jews? Um, that line was actually the Gestapo, the head of Gestapo in Prague said it, but we didn't have a scene with the head of Gestapo. We felt it fair to give it to another agent, if you like, of, yep. of the German regime. Um, uh, but, but it comes right down to what does Nicky look like, yes. um, the details of his clothing, the accuracy of the documents, all of that is part of the truth. And even if it doesn't bother you because you don't know it's wrong, um, I think it helps build up an atmosphere that you trust and then you go with the rest of the story. And also you have descendants and families yeah. and generations that go on yeah. that are tied to the story. So you have that's where a lot of that responsibility comes in. Of And can you imagine sitting in the room where you've got 12 of the kinder um, whose story you are telling? And there's an extraordinary review by um, Alfred Lord Dubbs uh, who was, again, one of Nicky's children, um, saying that he couldn't say he exactly enjoyed the film, um, but he was hugely moved by it because he was watching his story. He remembered the moment that he last saw his parents on the platform. Um, uh, so to have got that right for him, obviously we'd spoke to them at length yeah. to, to see what trace memories they might have. Um, I was, oh, I mean, the other thing was Esther, of course, on a slightly lighter note, having worked for her. I mean, I knew I'd be in deep trouble if I got things wrong. So, um, what she was, yeah. And how was it? Because um, I, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, that some of them were you were part of the filming when you were recreating yeah. Yeah. its life. I'm just thinking of the emotional. Um, challenges around that and how you prepare and you have a, a crew and the sensitivity for a crew and a cast to work also with people who who are, who who would actually happen to how did you kind of prepare those filming days 
I think the first thing is that you cast your crew as well as you cast the actors. Um, and uh, the crew that came onto this were so excited to be telling a true story and a story they felt mattered. Yeah. So I had the right team around me. Um, we had um, counselling support on those days where we had, uh, on quite a few days actually, but on those days we had the real people there in case anybody needed it. Although frankly, with what most of them had been through, um, they they were far more um, able to cope with those crises and emotions than most of the rest of us. That day in the studio, when we had the children of the real children there, um, I will never forget. And even the most hardened technician on the floor was sobbing. I, can, I can't I can pretend imagine. otherwise. <laughs> it's It also speaks to one of the questions I had, and I don't know if people in the audience did, was that... One of the challenges when you're making a period film, and I know we get this a lot in the early stages of trying to market the film or, or even just trying to get the film financed, is how is it going to be relevant to a contemporary audience and how did you tackle that? What were, what were some of the things that you decided to perhaps do? Because it felt at times quite... I just felt very present in the filmmaking when it was going on. I wasn't conscious of I've been taken back in time. I just felt very in those moments. And so there was a real kind of raw energy that you brought to them. It's a real challenge because um, we wanted to make a very British film. Um, I looked at a lot of archive from from the Kindertransport and partly because the camera is still new, you find lots of smiling people and happy people and um, it doesn't feel true. But I found references in the situation in Ukraine and actually some of the images we've recreated, like the hand over the hand on the, gra on the glass, yeah are from photojournalism shooting in Kyiv and elsewhere in Ukraine. Uh, so that, I think, I hope subliminally has got a, a, a reference coming through. And honestly, I think essentially it's such a big human story of such yeah. scope that it is going to reach across decades and, and uh, across countries. Well, it also still, I mean, the film does a beautiful job of positing that central question of what can one ordinary person do? And I'm, sh I'm sure everybody is currently faced with this thinking with what's going on in the world particularly right now, and I think the film really speaks to that. I, I was really struck by it. I was sitting next to an older Jewish woman at the screening on Monday night who was just couldn't speak afterwards, but she mm. just wanted to hold my hand, and it was, a, it was a very beautiful kind of silent communication, but I was very aware of these kind of modern repercussions of the story that you're telling, which you wouldn't have known. When no, we didn't. We didn't embark it. I mean, I can't think of a better compliment that we're moving people. If some of you moved, then that's fantastic. It's... We started before, an early recce, we went to Prague um, and we were standing at Wilson Station um, where we were expecting to be able to film. So the, the very platform from which those kids had gone. And there is at the end of this, the station a statue, a not terribly good statue, honestly, of Nicky Winton um, with a child on his shoulder and a child in his hand. And because we're like everybody else, we took our little Insta snaps. And then suddenly in the distance, there was quite a disturbance. Um, uh, police, children crying, people in high-vis. It was quite a crowd, dozens of people. And you know that way when you're in a public place and the cosmos sort of changes around you and you're almost on guard. And then we realised that these were refugees arriving from the very first weeks of the war in Ukraine when it was still at that... Oh, I'm sure yeah. it's hot and ugly right now, but it, it felt hugely emotional. And it stopped us in our tracks. And we knew then we were making something 
relevant, obviously, with the refugee crisis globally. We know it was relevant in its way. But it would have been wrong ever to reach for that. Yes. And I don't want for a moment to think that we're trying to get air under our wings from... No, no, no. ...the dark serendipity. Yeah, but I do... Yeah, I, I think... Um well, it's interesting. Uh, maybe I can go back to when you first read the script. Is the script that you read the very first, because mm. I know it's based on mm. Barbara's book, um, it, but is the first script that you read, how how close is that to what we're seeing on screen? And what was the, say, from the script that you read to the shooting script that you ended up actually going into production with? And then what was the process into what, you f- what your finished film is? Um. The script falls into two sections. So the 1980s is considerably like it was in the script I first read. I wanted to work more on the journey through grief for Nikki. Um, It felt to me that that could be sharpened and give more for an actor and draw the actor in more likely so that you get that idea of him working through to some point of catharsis. Um, And part of that, honestly, is making sure you're going to land the actor you want for it. Um, The 1930s section, not so much. Um, it is a challenge. It is There are things that are familiar. There are familiar tropes that you need to try and find a new way to do. Um, the scene with Trevor rushing for the visas is true. Yep. Wasn't in the script. Um, and I felt added a sort of thriller element to it, helped the ticking clock, the urgency. So I was really keen to try and get where we could without inventing stuff. Um, more of that sense of imperative into the 1930s and get away from too much chocolate box, period. I thought you did a really wonderful thing with the, I don't know if other people did, with the setup of the briefcase mm. and Trevor's initials and, you know, I, I was going to the worst possible thing and what had happened to him and, and I, I thought that was really cleverly played out. Okay, now that's interesting because that answers the third part of your question, which is what happened in the edit. Ah. Um, the original script started with a moment of Anthony, of older Nicky, and then told the 1930s story, story strictly linear, in a strict linear, and then did the 80s in a chunk. And in the edit, we felt that the two time periods could much better inform each other. And what that did was give us the rosebud moment with, with the briefcase. What's in the briefcase? What's the secret? So there's a little bit of detective story, I hope, at least that delivered. And also... You know he saved kids. I mean, when you come in here, you know the kids are saved. So what's the reveal? Yeah. And it's the ninth train. And by holding that back in all its horror, you tease it, but you don't know quite why it counts and why it's haunting him until the flashback in the scene with Betty Maxwell. Now, that was all discovered in the edit. That's brilliant. That was Lucia. That's Lucia Zuccetti. Have you worked with her before? No, but I will again. She's... Very brilliant. Yeah, it's just what you need, you know, a moment of that when you're threatening to throw yourself out of a Soho window and <laughs> well, we somebody having, like that. Yeah. We were having a discussion outside. I was saying to James, you know, did, did you have that thing that I yeah. think is just common to all directors but we all feel very alone when it happens and it feels like it's always the worst is when you watch your first assembly, hmm. did you think I'm never going to work again and yes. you never see No, I walked away thinking I've just blown a huge career opportunity. Um And a very good, well, first of all, my wife always says you say that every time. Um, And a very good friend, uh, one time chair of this organization, has said to me, if you're not on the fire escape, projectile vomiting down below and threatening to throw yourself, it's fine. (laughs) Exactly. Well well done, it was fine. Um, Can I also ask, so... How did you get uh, Anthony, Tony? He calls himself Tony. That's not just me being familiar. Um, 
Uh, he was, I'm he assuming was... that's where you started your cast. Oh, utterly, yes. And you always do that, that centre point out. Because um, it's an interesting thing in terms of directors. We were talking uh, just about behind the, behind the scenes, perhaps what people don't see. We're, people are aware of the work that you do on screen and what mm. you do from script to screen. But I think, and I think this is a phrase you've actually used, which is managing up. The kind of work that you need to do behind the scenes to... You know, and you're doing it in conjunction with producers and with writers, but how do you attract the cast and then how do you start to build that cast mm. as you go through? Well, um, Tony had been... Uh, Barbara Winton, who is Nikki's daughter and biographer, uh, when she brought the book back to Seesaw, she said, uh, the only thing is it has to be Anthony Hopkins, which is no small ask for a production company. <laughs> um, uh, he had been flirting with it. And then I was sent to meet him and persuade him that um, we were going to make the same film and I knew something of what I was going to do. So, and, and that was great. I mean, we spent hours talking through it and we talked about restraint and humility and, and the tone of what we wanted to achieve. And he had a very strong handle on um, that generation as yeah. he felt them. He talked a lot about his father. And, uh, and it, uh, uh, so once I got him largely hooked, it's about building out. Obviously, we needed... Johnny Flynn, we needed the younger Nikki um, and did Helena. Did you go straight to Johnny, or did you look? We went straight to Johnny. Right, we just knew, and I'd worked with Johnny before. And again, it's that he's the right type of actor who wouldn't try and make it his own. He was willing to adapt to what Tony was doing, uh, and we form. I hope you think one character. Um, There's a really beautiful moment, I'm sure everyone noticed, when you first cut from um, Tony to Johnny, and there's a, you, I really noticed it anyway, the, the, the slight smudge of the eye, the slight yeah. drop of one eye, is that, that was obviously a deliberate choice that yes. continued through, but it meant that it didn't bump for me anyway as an audience member, and often it does, and, and you go with it and it's fine and you're switching characters, but uh, switching actors playing the same character, but I really was struck by how seamless that was. I think it, it's a huge credit to them. I mean, we, for production reasons, we had to shoot Tony first anyway. And then Johnny came to set and he met with Tony and he watched him and he began to pick up the, the syntax of his voice and some of the little gestures with the glasses. And then the eye, yes, we did a little thing with the droop on the eye, which is true to Nikki as well. Um, and then make sure that the angles we would shoot would reflect that. It's a subtle thing but it just helps you ease in across those those jumps, especially when you go from older Nicky looking out of a window quite often. You need yep. to go through those reflective face moments back to something familiar. And were you able to, because obviously you've you've worked, you've done huge work in television, very high end, were you able to bring some of your kind of key creative collaborators onto this? Or what was that like going from the kind of television world to the film world? Okay, so the first answer is no, and I found that very frustrating. Um, Understandable. I... I mean, British high-end TV these days is, well, as a director of The Crown, you know, I mean, at a level up there in terms of the cast you're using, the scale of the stories you're telling, um, the, uh, and, and, the creative and the creative crews. Yeah. That's why we are a global industry here, because people are coming for the cast and the crews, and the directors, clearly. Um, all of the directors. All of the directors, all of you. Um, uh, and I pitch taking a designer I knew, um, a costume designer I knew, an editor I knew, and they were all pushed back because they hadn't done a movie. Right. Um, and having now done a movie and compared some of the skills across the two, of course there are different things rhythmically you need to do, different levels of detail you need to create, um, different paces. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> um, but I would, having done one, I would argue and have argued quite fiercely 
to take some of the brilliant TV people across because I think the link between the two is something that's changed seismically since Netflix hit, hit the scene and the ambition of television has grown so much. Yeah. Um, and there is a wealth of experience to be further explored there. There's also a lot of feature people that have come into television, so you yeah. would hope that, that, that the floodgates would work both ways. But well, it was just 10, 12 years ago that we were making micro-budget dramas on BBC4 yeah. that were attracting Michael Sheen, Helena Bonham Carter and the like to television from the big screen for the first time. That was before even Netflix was doing House of Cards. So the traditions are there and I think that cross-fertilisation is incredibly powerful and useful and productive. Can I ask you, what were, you, what were, what were your biggest battles? Because I, I would say, in my experience as a director even though it's great to present a kind of, it was all fantastic and it was the creative collaborations were brilliant. Behind the scenes, it's very, very tough. And what were the things that you found the hardest on this particular production? Time versus ambition, always. And yeah. when to compromise. I mean... Uh, you only had, what, 32, 33 days? 32 days and one insert day. So to put that in context, 15 days with Anthony, who at 84... Um, doing he he'd do an eight or nine hour day yep and it, and absolutely brilliantly um, but uh, to do then seventeen days for everything in Prague and to be clear all the train stuff is shot in Prague sadly Liverpool Street wouldn't give us permission um, so we found a check station and then used VFX to make it look like Liverpool Street um, did, it, did it mean you could keep the children in one it place? Also, there's the logistics involved again because the, the children were Czech and we'd otherwise have had to fly them over here and their chaperones and parents and what have you. So there were practicalities involved. Um, and so even the interior of Willow Road is a set built behind another set in in Prague. That's the family home. That's the family home, yes. And we, we didn't, couldn't afford the studio. But the set of the hotel and the hotel corridor, we built that Willow Road set behind it right. so as soon as we wrapped the corridor we could strike that wall and yep. ta-da there was Hampstead um, we made a mistake on the first day though because as they put in the window flat they sealed two carpenters behind it <laughs> who had to stay there for five hours until Ooh, we could count knocking them. trying yeah, to get out they weren't amused yeah. I'm sure how did you what were the differences like shooting in Prague and the UK um, were you able to take most of your crew across I, I took heads of department right um, uh, focus pullers um, and Prague is is a great place to shoot yeah. you've got fantastic creative people um, all those teams are good uh, again you see the thing in Prague they're so used to doing they're another production hub as many of you all know but um, they're used to telling stories of uh, they they double as Berlin as Paris as as, as Mars um, and they were so proud to be telling a story about Prague yeah. and that got us love and access in all sorts of places. I mean, just the number of trains and the fact that those trains are actually running and pulling into stations, which I mean, anyone who's tried to do that in the UK understands the challenge of that. Yeah. That must have been... And into the main central station in Prague. Um, but that's those are the days. So we'd have 12 hours there where they'd let us on the platform. And I had two days of 12 hours. We're literally running up and down the platform to give notes to the actors to get back to the monitors to try and get it covered. Did you Did you get to the end of those 32, 33 days and think... I, I, I don't know whether I've got it or... Was there any chance of going back and shooting There's any extra absolutely material? absolutely no chance. So day after day, you know, you knew if you didn't get it at the end of the day, and that's the other tough thing, is the creative compromise, to know on yourself, I, I cannot afford another take. I have to get the close-up on that child. 
their child hours are about to run out. Yeah. Um, the train needs to shuttle because we've got to let some other rolling stock in. And you're doing the maths, which is not my strong point, <laughs> as you go. Um, Did you have a, um, a very supportive, good first assistant with you? I had a very good first assistant. I had a tremendously supportive producer, which, as we know, is not always the case and was a real enabler. Great. And was on set And was you. on set and was a deputy brain when I needed them. That's a wonderful, that's a, that's a <clears throat> great creative collaboration to have. Yeah. Can you talk about how you um, worked and briefed with your kind of key creatives? You know, I, I really, Zach's work is very beautiful, always is. But again, just the restraint that you were talking about, the palette work, how he, how nothing was kind of shiny. And I really loved that when no. we were introduced to the home and the pool. Well, uh, we, we made, there are various decisions. So let's talk, give it specifics and talk about the house. Um, so... I'm talking about the, the, the house for the older Nikki. Yep. Um, we gave it that restraint. I gave a limited palette. Um, you may or may not have noticed we kept red completely out of the palette in, until when it becomes the swastika. Yeah. So then there is the impact of Nazism arriving. It also, whenever you take it out, it's much better for the flesh tones. There are all sorts of technical reasons. I like to limit the palette. It also gave a sense of the older man trapped yeah. in a slightly beige world. Um, with Zach, we decided that the camera for those scenes should be pretty static. The, 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 he works within a frame. The camera doesn't move very much. It's about his age and, and his grief controlling him. Um, and then the camera, traditionally when you go into period, the camera is uh, rather respectful. Yeah. And we decided to go handheld and fairly crazy from the moment we joined Johnny in Prague. So we're on the mission, we're with the younger man, it's lively, it's got more urgency about it, and perhaps a little bit more of a contemporary feel. It had it's, a real energy to yes, it, though. I really liked yeah. the energy to it. And on the practical side, you shoot quicker. Yeah. So you're doing a bit of maths there. Um, I mean, the communication with the costume department, for instance, um, uh, brilliant Joanna Eatwell did all this research into the refugees and talked about the different tribes. They were not just refugees. We had to be specific. Some had come from Berlin. Some had come from Austria. Um, some were from rural Sudetenland. So we built the families and the rough proportions and then she costumed them as, as such. Um, and again, you may not notice the detail, but we went into that, and I think as a whole, you sort of you trust the world. You do. You also the the actors look really happy in their costumes. They don't feel like thing. it's being worn. It. They've got something that they can put their hands in their pockets. You know, yes. I know what Helena's yes likes. Well, and and Helena on a set, yes. as, as you all know. Um, I'm just to say again, Helena is just a joy. I'm beyond national treasure. It's the energy she will bring in her few days, and. She will walk onto a set like Willow Road and she'll go, right, this is supposed to be my house, so where are my props? And if I was here and I was coming in with an egg and toast, where would I sit to eat it? Um, I wouldn't type here, that's bollocks. Let's move that over there. Yeah. And she will organise things as she feels her character would operate. And then she's owned the space. And you don't question what period she's in. Um, no. Uh, and nor who her kids are. She still texts Johnny and Tony, dear son... <laughs> Which would be, it, it, I, I was really struck by, so did Tony and Johnny work together a bit with you? Yes. Okay. And did to, I mean, what's lovely about the frames, the choices that Tony's making within that, did you leave him to be quite free? Would he kind of talk to you about what he was thinking he was doing? It was, it was that beautiful a a... moment with um, 
Um, I'm I'm so sorry, Rana, before, but um, the wonderful actress, Marta, who plays... Marta Callow, who plays Betty. Who plays Betty, Robert Maxwell's wife, mm. where he gets up... What I found an extraordinary moment in the film where she says, you do realise that there were 15,000, over 15,000 Czech children mm. who went into the camps and less than 200 of them came out. Mm. And so she says, you know, with 600. And it really, it's such a beautiful still moment in that vast, not heavily dressed room. Yeah. And he just gets up and walks to that window. And that was, uh, that, that's totally a, an Anthony idea. It's just, um, yeah. he, his character feels the need to escape. And he talked again about England and the peace and the tranquility. And he wanted that sort of view. So we found that sort of bucolic view. And he talked about it and thinking of it in the time, in, in the middle of the war. Um, so it was a memory of something bucolic that was lost. And it's also what the character then speaks to as he turns and says, I try not to think about it in order to remain useful. And that's, again, the restraint of the character and what he's done. It's one of the most emotional scenes for me because it's uh, yeah. all about keeping the lid on. It's really... But it's also the way you... The kind of mise-en-scene of it and the, and the way that you allow the actors within the space and the way you set up that space. It's mm. not an overly stuffed room. It mm. doesn't scream wealth, which is what you're set up. Mm. It feels exactly right for the period of yeah. the time. Um, I was Good. really I was really struck by a lot of that. Thank you. Um, and obviously there is a great trust between the cast and yourself. Mm. And it's really wonderful to hear that there was that kind of openness and collaboration, not just with the cast, but obviously with your key creatives as well. I mean, I think that's about, and you know this, is the director coming out and you've got to be clear about what your vision is. Yeah. And you've got to be extremely clear about how you communicate it. That doesn't mean that a better idea can't come from the runner on the edge of the set. But it's, it's about being really clear what you're going to do and you communicate it down through each line. And then, then you know with actors like Helena and Tony and Johnny, well, all of them, they will come onto set and if things aren't right, they smell it in an instant. And then they're like hyenas. They go after your ankles like the weak wildebeest and it's not pretty. Yeah, it's true. But obviously there was a great deal of trust. You can see it in the performances. And sometimes I think you, you uh, there are certain days where there's an energy with an actor because there's an anxiety around the scene that's being portrayed. So... Mm, even yes. though it may be coming out at you in a different way or it's yeah. or it's uncomfortable or very challenging, it, it's often not... To, it's to do with the given circumstances of the character and often less to do with the personal, I think, with, with the actors that you were working with. Do that with AI. Exactly. Oh, let's move on Sorry, to another. Sorry, no, no, got <laughs> It's a very frightening thing. Can I ask you about... Uh, there are a huge amount of children in the film and I was really struck when I know, when I when when it starts, there's that beautiful still photographic image mm. of that first child and I remember thinking just the work to get that photographic image, to get that negative on screen, the state the child has to be in, what you need to talk to the child about, the fact that you're dealing in uh, real-life trauma with mm. children. So how, how did you kind of navigate all of that? Very early on I said, we'll stand or fall on the kids. Yeah. Um, we worked with three acting coaches. They're all teachers who've made a profession also sideline of, uh, of coaching kids into movies in Prague. Um, and I didn't want the stage performer, you know, the um, Oliver Twist kind of performance that we get and that's wrong. And we went and found almost entirely um, new 
kids who had never acted before. We went to Jewish community in Prague, so almost all of them are cast uh, ethnically correct, if you see what I mean. We broke them into families, we told them where their characters had come from, so they workshopped for some afternoons um, to know what their backstory was. Was their mother still alive? Where'd they come from? Were they in a refugee camp? Did they still have money? Were they in an apartment in Prague? So they had some story to play with, and we had the families, the kids, play together with their acting siblings. I was really struck by the family of brothers, but I'm guessing they the weren't Slonic brothers. Boys. No, they weren't, they weren't brothers. They're just but I think so beautiful together. They're yeah. really And never acted before. Um, but I think you, you believe it, and you see the rawness. Uh, and uh, w w to answer the other part of your question, again, we had child counsellors on set for anybody right. that was. And there were one or two, particularly in the scenes where we the ninth train, Yeah. the moment the Nazis arrive and start banging on the side of the train, we had to take several kids out of that because it was too much. Just, yeah, just, yeah, it's a delicacy. And therefore, for the actors playing those German roles mm. uh, or the SS roles as there were, I mean, I think it's easy to forget that, that awful, often for those actors too, it's mm. a confronting situation. They're on set representing it, hugely. certain types of humanity that they, you know... And, and I know it's a role and I know they're actors, but it doesn't mean it doesn't affect them. No, and, and you have to put it in the context of being in Prague. Um, we did the day on the station without... So before the Nazi occupation, and then we had to put the flags up. And the flags were being hung in that evening... And we had people on set and security and what have you. But passengers arriving across the station just saw Nazi flags. Um, and the police were called um, because they thought it was some sort of extreme right-wing demo. Right. Um, and obviously, in Prague particularly, uh, uh, the echoes are very loud and very live. So we had to handle that carefully. Again, there was very... Um, careful management of the set. And, and the same with crew too. You need yes. everybody on board. Not, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's, that's a lot of the That's another part role. of the management, yeah. Yeah, it is. And did you find, so if you have such a limited shooting time, how much prep did you have? Did you have enough prep so that you felt when you hit <sighs> the ground, you were like, okay, we're ready. We can do this as fast as we need to? Not really, but no. do you ever, I think no. you just generally meet a moment where you think it'll feel good to start. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're tech still recce. working every sixth and seventh day to prep your... Yeah. <laughs> um, I quite like tech recce's. They're when you when can dream everything sure. and it's all going to be amazing. Um, and then there's the first day and the first shot and it's not quite how you imagined it. And then it's... What did you start with? What was your... It was Anthony sitting at the table counting the coins. Oh, great, which is... It's well, early on in the film. film. Very early on. Yeah. Finding but you see, button. equally there, what you'd quite like, as he's then discovered his character, is probably to go back to that. Yes. Rather than start right at the beginning. Are there still things when you watch the film now that you think, I wish, I wish, I wish? Oh, God, yes. I mean, I, that's why I don't always sit through it, because there are bits I have to close my eyes. I mean, um, I don't want any people <laughs> suggesting, was it that bit either? Um, <laughs> just there are, there are bits I'd want to re-edit. Um, oh, there are... There are ADR lines that I think are too narratively pointy-pointy and producers told me, no, it's really good and people will love them. And Can we talk a little bit about that? Because <sighs> So there's the process of pre-production and, and casting and the voices that involve with that and then there's the process of shooting and you, you sound like you had an unbelievably great, you know, creative producer alongside you yes. kind of in the trenches. And then when you get to the edit process and there's there's a there's a really lovely period of time in the meadow where it's just you and the editor and you're in there and you're working through things. 
And then the next wave comes in and the other voices come in, which is always something we all learn to navigate. Do but we? What was the process? Well, <laughs> um, do you like to talk about Yeah, that? well, it is. And obviously, again, it's slightly different. Oh, well, um, let's compare notes yeah. a bit. It's slightly different when you're doing a movie. But you get to director's cut. So yeah. I had 10 weeks of editing to deliver a director's cut. And um, in come your immediate producer and your two execs, part of Cecil Films. And they're sat there with you and the editor. And it's the film you've seen, but none of the VFX, none of the sound effects, none of the, 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 the score. And it's in a black room and it comes to the black screen and it's very dark and it's absolutely freaking silent. And it's terrifying because you've just had your homework marked. Yeah. And the silence seemed to go on and on. And then the editor, Lucia, got up and put the lights on. And they're all sobbing. Oh, thank God. Yeah, really. And that's exactly <laughs> yeah. how it felt. Yeah. But then there are the stages, because then you have to send it out to other parties. Yeah. Warner Brothers, we love you. Some of you are here. Thank you very much. Um, but there are opinions. Of course. And you have to listen to those opinions, but also decide... What am I going to fight for? What am I going yeah. to defend? What do I think they're wrong on? Because there is nervousness everywhere. Yeah. Everybody's invested in it. Everybody wants it to work. And then you have a public screening when 200 people are invited. Um, and they don't hold back, let me tell you. When they're invited to, to give their opinions, they really do. And then you get a score with numbers at the top out of 100. How was that process for you? Um, well, again, a first. And okay. thankfully, it went well. But it can be brutal. And yeah. When they spoke about it, do you think they understood what they meant by what the director did? Did they understand what they were well, no, critical but, of? No, not necessarily, but I don't think we can excuse ourselves for that. If they found something that wasn't quite clear or yeah. Well, that wrong, is our job. Our job that is, is our job. Yeah. And in the end, we can't blame anybody else. No, it would be nice to sometimes, but mm. no, we can't. Oh. Oh. Um, I'm just wondering if I could throw it out. Any questions from people? Does anyone want to ask anything of James or in particular about the process of the filmmaking? If you do, we've got some mics around so you can ask. Oh, dear. Okay, I can see somebody up there. Oh, no, sort of oh yes, I can see in the middle there. Yeah. And really, it's, it's not a BAFTA screening. It's, it's, it's not a test. It's, it's not a, it, I'd really go for it, you know. I mean, kick. Here we go. Uh, hello, I really enjoyed the film. Thank you. With the score, how early on did you bring the composer into the filmmaking process? As soon as I'd done the director's cut, we sent it out to a short list of three composers. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, or maybe just to, to, to you, Jess, but um, Volker Bertelmann, who had just won an Oscar for um, All Quiet on the Western Front, um, came back and said, I want to do this. It's such a humble film. And I thought, if the composer has realized, has tuned into the tone word like that, he's the right guy. And again, we kept talking about restraint and finding something that was not too, as I hope you think, not too saccharine and sweet and too big on the strings. Anyone? I can't see. There's someone up the back there. Hello. Hiya. Congrats on the movie. Thank you. I just wondered how you approached the That's Life sequences, given that we've all seen that on Good social question. media. Yeah. How did you approach that? You're very right. I mean, obviously, it exists there as an evergreen clip on YouTube that goes viral two or three times a year. Um, uh, I wanted it to be Nikki's experience. So if you're used to the clip, you're used to seeing it from the broadcast camera's point of view from out here. So when we walk into the studio with Nikki, I'm on his shoulder. 
So you discover this alien environment with him and the lights coming down the lens and him sitting there and going and making his plea to be sat further back. Then when he meets Vera, I'm shooting French overs. I'm over his shoulder. I'm not in here, Esther's point of view. So I try to make it as intimate as possible there. Um, to take it away, to add to the story, if you like, that you could see on YouTube. And then obviously I tried to make a little bit more of the drama of the moment where everybody stands up. Does that answer? That, uh, great. Point of view. That's such a great... Yeah. It's, it's also who's, whose scene is this? What is the experience I want to convey? Where am I? And where's that from? Yes, there's someone in the middle, the back there. Thank you. I thought the movie was really brilliant. Um, I just wondered, from the original screenplay that you got given, how much of the dialogue did you cut, if any, and for what reason? Uh, very little. Um, there's some added. Um, Anthony has a particular way of naturalizing his lines, um, owning it with the character. Um, uh, that's a discussion we have almost on a case-by-case -case basis, but listen, when it's Sir Anthony Hopkins, you tend to say yes. Um, Do you have the screenwriters with you? No. Okay, so they... But would no. you talk to them and say... Yes. You got that idea from Tony early on, this is what he's going to do, and, yeah. and just trying to... Yeah. And a good scene is the scene with... Well, we talked... We called it the two popes, because obviously we reunited the two popes, and the banter between them was pretty spectacular. Um... <laughs> And the moment Tony changed the line, then Jonathan would say, oh, he's doing it again. He's trying, <laughs> he's trying to throw me. And the arguments about which of the two Welsh actors was the more Welsh were took a lot of screen time that day. Um, so, no, it's, it's as we went. Now, sometimes you find things you think, I need a little bit more clarity, or there's a document or a prop that needs pointing up better. Or with the child actors, I'd suddenly say, forget all your lines you've been given to learn think of this instead because quite often if they came too rehearsed you could freshen it up by making them have to think and then you see them in their eyes thinking about what it is they want to say no straight rules um lucky enough to have producer and writers who are trusting that's really fantastic yes the back just while the mics are getting there, can I ask, in that scene with Tony and Jonathan, mm. that story that he tells about why the Samaritans threw him out, is that true? It's true. It's a brilliant story. I know. I, I, know. Love, I loved the way he told it. Yes. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Congratulations on the film. I just wanted to ask about the production design because you obviously you've got two different time periods. Yeah. And you don't... Um, like, for example, in the 80s, we see lot of timeless stuff that's in it and you're intercutting between I know you said that later on you you'd move stuff around in post but what was your process and your kind of concept in, I guess, in terms of the design yeah well I, I've touched a little bit on that house now, honestly that was a tremendously lucky find Nikki lived in a house very like that but out of town and for particular practical reasons in terms of getting Tony there um, with the least amount of travel as well. We found a house that happened to be on the market and have a swimming pool. We never expected to be lucky enough to find the pool and the house in the right place. Um, amazingly, it was up for sale, owned by the daughter of a survivor from the Kinder Transport. Um, uh, we kept having these things happen. I mean, the serendipity and the coincidences were off the scale. Um, we're filming, I'm going to sidetrack just for a moment because it's a good story. We're filming in Hampstead outside Willow Road 
and this elderly man came up to me with his grandson and said, I'm sorry, I was just on my way to Tesco's, but is this the Anthony Hopkins film? And we said, yes. He said, oh, I knew you were making it. And of course, this is Willow Hill, where it actually happened. Yes. Um, I'm Trevor Chadwick's son. And then he spent the rest of the day sat by me at the monitor, this 92-year-old man. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, what were the chances of a trip to Tesco's? Um, uh, a lot, where we had reference, we were very careful to try and recreate it. Where there were original places to go to, we did, because you could feel the history coming through the stones. Um, sometimes we had to make compromises. So, for example, the Home Office is shot in a building in Prague that is now a um, government department there. I would have loved to have filmed in Charles Street and been down in Westminster. Our budget wouldn't allow us to do that. Um, the irony is that that building was actually used by the Gestapo during the war. Um, uh, my producer cringed because the woodwork's all wrong, so we'd come to a compromise on some of the angles. Um, I wanted it to feel as authentic as possible. We tried to stay away from the twee. Uh, we talked about this. Here's an mm. example as well. Think about how you tell the story of the news of the war being declared to your characters. And we've all seen the turning on of the radio, which is what was in the original script. How do you tell that story? You, you need, in Shakespearean terms, somebody arriving with a message, probably carrying a spear. Um, how do you do that? So we, or I tried to imagine other ways that that would happen. If you think of the smartphone equivalent, your phone would ping with a news alert. Um, somebody ring you to say, have you seen the news? Oh my God. So we had a phone ring offset. And actually what happened was the church bells rang which I thought of as the BBC news alert coming on your phone. Um, and then we cut to Nicky in his office where all hell's breaking loose because the stocks are plummeting. So that felt to me like a new way of doing it and trying to um, escalate it. Though, but those were designs where we went to some lengths to what does a stockbroker's office look like? And that is all from actual reference and we tried to build it as accurately as we can and then use it always to make the story follow the story through the set, don't make it about the set, however proud of it you are. You also did a lovely thing, though, because his boss was always out of focus until right at the end. It's the only time you saw him in focus was when he was saying, where are you going? Yeah. And it was great. I was always aware of that man in the background, and I knew it was his boss, but I couldn't see him. And we, we rather like that because it is the faceless authority that's always haunting him and saying, come back and stop being a bloody hero. Um, that oh, seemed right. I noticed that was good. Yes, um, you were working with the story by Nikki's daughter. Yes. Um, how did you work with the family and at what point did you show them your film and how did they react? Well, there's quite a story to that. Um, in fact, the writers should answer most of that because they worked very closely. They went and stayed with Nikki and Barbara um, when Nikki was still alive, with Barbara later through the years um, uh, and talked at some length. Um, we also talked to the kinder, the surviving kinder, and anybody else we could find, descendants of the volunteers, for example, of Doreen and Trevor. Um, uh, Barbara was an advisor right up to the beginning of the filming. She spoke to Helena, she spoke to the woman who played her, um, she spoke to Johnny. Barbara was very ill, and as you see from the credits, she tragically died literally while we were in the air on the way to Prague. Um, her husband and children took over and they run the Nicky Winton Trust. We also had the Holocaust Education Trust who know that story very well as part of our advising committee. And then again, you're right, in, in showing that film to the family and we showed it just to the family 
uh, families um, quite early on. And that is what we spoke about earlier, that enormous um, lump in your throat responsibility about showing it to people for whom this story matters more than anybody else. And I'm thrilled to say they, they warmed to it and have been talking about it proudly since. Was the end scene always going to be the end scene? Because I loved the end scene. Yes, it was. Um, and it was about getting that bit of sun, which you can see we struggled to quite get, um, and making it feel almost documentary in yeah. our shooting style, the freer camera. Um, and those rather wonderful kids again coming in, um, keeping it alive. Yeah, it was just the, just the, the generational... Yes, the like sense the family goes on. Those, yeah, they are wonderful. among those 6,000 people. Yeah, it was, I found that yeah. incredibly moving. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to thank James for making thank an you. extraordinary film and talking about it. It was really oh, great. Thank you, directors all. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear plenty more directors in conversation by subscribing on the usual streaming platforms. Follow us on social media and find out more about us at directors.uk.com. <laughs>